we're gonna uh, kind of weed them out. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ask them. Uh, I weeded out all the more extreme ones, and uh, we're gonna ask you a few things that people are curious about. Uh, but for those who do not know who you are, uh, Doctor Zink, uh, could you give us a little bit about who you are and your and your background? I understand you are the uh, the, the top medical officer for the state, and uh, which is incredible. Con- congratulations on on a beautiful career and in life. Uh, but uh, let's give a little background on who you are. Yeah, no, great. Thank you so much. I am most importantly an Alaskan, a mom, a wife, a runner, a lover of this beautiful state uh, who lives and practices here. I'm a practicing emergency medicine physician who got the extreme honor to step into this role of the chief medical officer about six months prior to COVID hitting. So I've been in the job almost two years now, uh, and it's just been a real honor to work with Alaskans to promote DHSS's mission, Department of Health and Social Services mission, which is the health and well-being of all Alaskans, uh, COVID and non. So I'm not just the CMO of COVID, but the CMO uh, our state uh, Department of Health and Social Services. So it's great to be here. Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, I'll go right into the question. So uh, I actually just had COVID. Uh, I'm getting over it. Uh, still, my smell and taste are back at about, I'd say, 60%. Uh, so um, I am curious about this first question that I had, which was a really common one. Um are you immune to COVID after having the virus? And if so, how long? How long do those antibodies or what have you last? That is a fantastic question. And unfortunately, there's not a simple answer because different people's bodies respond very differently to COVID. I think of it like a choose your own adventure. And some people develop a really strong, robust immune system. Some people not nearly as much. And some people don't have really good protection against some of the variants that we're seeing spreading overall. So depending on that, it can last uh, weeks to months and potentially even longer. But again, it depends on different parts of your immune system, your B cells, your antibodies, as well as your T cell response. And it's for that reason that we recommend even people like yourself who are recovering from COVID, I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better, uh, still get vaccinated because it uh, provides longer lasting and better protection than natural immunity in most cases. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, uh, speaking on immunity, um, I have another question. Uh, What is herd immunity and how difficult is this goal? Because, uh, you know, we have a sort of a general consensus amongst some that the vaccine isn't that big, isn't isn't worth it and that it's worthwhile to actually get the virus itself and then build your own immunity. So a lot of people are thinking that way. So with so many people who are unwilling to have the vaccine, how, how far are we from that herd, that herd immunity? Yeah, so another great question. Herd immunity depends on two major variables. One, that is how well someone's protected against future infection. So that be both natural infection as well as vaccine protection. And two, how easily that virus moves between people. And we see a variety of different responses, particularly amongst natural infection and how well that immunity stays. And we see different variants can move more quickly or less quickly amongst people. So it's not a specific number. What I will say is that vaccines really do an amazing job at minimizing the chance that you will get symptomatic COVID, that you will spread it to others, that you will require hospitalization, that you will die, and that this vaccine, that this virus continues to spread. So this vaccine does a really great job at that. So I don't think this is an on and off switch where suddenly one day, you know, we hit some magic number and poof, it's uh, all uh, all gone in a way. What I would say is that every single person who chooses to get vaccinated helps to protect themselves, their community, the healthcare infrastructure, and minimizes that risk uh, to each other. So that's part of the reason why we're just really excited to have this tool in the toolbox uh, to really be able to put this pandemic behind us and get Alaska up and going again. 
I love that. Now, you mentioned something there where you said that the vaccine helps you to not uh, have symptomatic COVID or to spread it uh, to others. Uh, This kind of goes into another question I have. What is the rate of infection for vaccinated individuals versus unvaccinated? Because you you can still get the vaccine with, uh, you can still get the virus with the vaccine. Yeah, so really great question. Um, There's a couple different factors that go into that. So if you look at the age group 12 to 15, the Pfizer data that came out on that showed that it was 100% protective against symptomatic disease. So the younger population, it really, in the trials, we didn't see anyone who was vaccinated who got symptomatic disease. In the trials 18 and above, we saw it to be 95% efficacious. That means one out of 20 people still got symptomatic disease, uh, but 19 out of 20 did not get symptomatic disease. And those who did get symptomatic disease, very few got super sick and required hospitalization or death. That being said, we've now scaled this up to hundreds of millions of doses worldwide. Um, And so, yeah, we do see vaccine breakthrough cases. We do see people who are fully vaccinated uh, who can still get COVID. It's just much less likely. And if they do get it, much less likely to get long COVID, to be hospitalized uh, or to die from it. And that's always been the goal, you know, to if we can move this to a, a mild cold or, you know, just a little bit of snuffles, that's one thing. Um, but when we've seen, you know, over, you know, 500,000 deaths uh, in this country alone, um, it really has impacted so many people uh, so far and really want to uh, put this pandemic behind us. So that's that's the reason that a highly efficacious vaccine is so useful. Just to put that in context, you know, the flu vaccine somewhere between 40 to 60 percent efficacious. So really a kind of a different uh, efficacy um, in those two different vaccines and, and why I, for one, was ecstatic to see the raw data from the initial trials on how efficacious these vaccines were, how well they work. You know. I love that. Um, so in a, in a case study where you're looking at people who have been vaccinated, who uh, who have also contracted the virus, you're saying that 95 percent of those people are not showing any symptoms and they're not passing it on just so that I can I'm clear on that. 95% are not showing any symptoms, correct. The passing it on is a little bit harder to tease out. And so there have been studies to look at how many people have asymptomatic disease, so they're not feeling it at all, and are vaccinated and can spread that. Uh, and there are estimates that anywhere from 70% uh, to 90 95% don't get any sort of asymptomatic disease. So it looks to be very good at slowing down the transmission that even people who don't get symptoms still are don't have enough virus to spread it to other people. But that data is a little bit harder because you got to be testing everyone like on a daily basis or a weekly basis to pick up those uh, cases early uh, to identify them. But there's been a couple of recent really good reports that have come out regarding asymptomatic disease as well as transmission. And a lot of real world studies where you see the number of vaccinated people going up, the number of cases going down. And again, that really speaks to its impact on decreasing the ability to transmit this from person to person, even if someone's completely asymptomatic. Beautiful. Now, I have a question, and then we're going to go into uh, what the vaccine actually is and different things like that. But I have a question just for my own curiosity, because my COVID case, although um, it was pretty mild, uh, I had just some body aches, uh, all of my joints hurt, oddly, like all the joints between my fingers and toes and my elbows and my knees, the headache, the burning of my nose before my smell disappeared. I mean, a lot of different things happened to me um, that were not fun, were a bit painful, my kidneys, different things. But a lot of people don't have any symptoms at all. And so I was, and a lot of people who I know back home uh, experienced a lot of uh, 
pretty extreme symptoms as well. So I want to know, um, I've heard this, I'm not sure if it's true, um, does the virus itself attack people of color more severely than others? I've, I've heard this and I'm finding that a lot of my, my family members back home in Detroit who have contracted this virus, it's pretty serious for them and it, and it takes them down in a pretty serious way, but some people just aren't having this happen to them. Um, so what are your thoughts on that and is there any research behind that? It's a really great question, um, and it's a complex question that I don't think we've got a perfect answer to. We do see that many people of color have been adversely impacted by this virus more so. Um, in Alaska, our data is a little bit different than the lower 48. So if you look at the nation as a whole, uh, people who are Hispanic, African-American, Black have been adversely impacted, as well as Alaska Native and Native Americans across the country. More cases, as well as those who have had cases, higher rates of hospitalization, as well as higher rates of death. It's a little bit harder to tease out why that is. Um, is it because people don't have access to the same health care? Is it because this virus affects their bodies differently? Uh, we have more data, I would say, in Alaska amongst Alaska Native people, and we can see that in every epidemic and pandemic, we have seen not only more cases amongst Alaska Native people, but we have seen more hospitalizations and more deaths amongst the other group that has been really adversely impacted in the state of Alaska has been Pacific Islanders. We saw increasing cases, increased hospitalizations, as well as increasing deaths uh, overall. We haven't seen to the same degree uh, our African-American population, our Hispanic population impacted here uh, to the same degree, but that's a little bit different than what we're seeing in the lower 48. So I think it's, it's um, multifactorial. We know that the stronger one's immune system is prior to getting COVID, the better off you do. We know that the better access to healthcare you have, the better off it is being able to take off work and be able to, you know, eat, drink, sleep, and, and care for yourselves all make a difference uh, in our ability to um, attach, you know, really protect yourself from this disease. Uh, that mental and physical health is critical. But there may also be additional genetic components that we have seen in other viruses. And I think we still have a lot to learn about this virus uh, regarding the way it has impacted different communities differently. Thank you for that answer, because that, that is something that has been a big curiosity for me. And you did speak on the ability to be able to take off of work and be able to fully rest and not have to worry about too much. And thankfully, I was able to do that and able to, to really just overly hydrate and just stay in bed for as long as I needed to and those kinds of things. But not everyone has those opportunities. So uh, thank you for that answer. And um, I really appreciate that. Um, so. I want to kind of get into what the vaccine is, and then I want to talk a little bit uh, about what um, what we do to test for this virus in community events. You know, a lot of people use temperature checks and things, but when I had COVID, amongst all the different the different symptoms I had, temperature was not one of them. My my temperature stayed right around ninety eight degrees, and and a lot of people um, who I've spoken to who have had COVID never developed a temperature either. So, is and is in your opinion is uh, a temperature check a valid form of COVID testing? And why? And if not, why is it being used so prevalently? <laughs> well, that is a fantastic question. About 50% of people who get COVID uh, develop a fever and 50% don't. So uh, you can see that that isn't a perfect check. Uh, and it can be a later symptom. So people can lose taste of sense and smell early. They can feel weakness and fatigue. And they can clearly shed virus for numerous days before they become symptomatic um, and definitely before they get a fever. And fever can be a later presenting symptom. I think of uh, temperature checking as potentially one additional layer to a whole bunch of other things that can be added on to reduce uh, the spread. But I think we have to be very cautious as to solely rely on it or to heavily rely on it. Um, because again, you're missing at least 50% of people and you're probably picking up people way late. 
the biggest thing we can all do is make sure that we are not attending events. We're not, again, this gets a little bit into that work uh, comment about not going to work, not being around others when we're symptomatic, when we're not feeling well. Um, it sounds like you had, you know, uh, symptoms that sounded quite painful, but a variety of symptoms that can change over time. Um, and I think they can be very hard to determine from, you know, feeling like you just got a cold or allergies or runny nose. Um, so I think this has just been a real a lesson to all of us that when we're not feeling well, we can be infectious with diseases, including COVID, to slow down, to try to stay away from others. And our tests are our most useful tool to identifying it. So it sounds like you got tested early and, and being able to get tested really is the way to see this disease versus other things to make sure that you know that you don't have COVID so you can protect yourself, your family, and your community. It's just knowledge. So I'm kind of hearing that uh, it's kind of up, up to you to, to really uh, take a look at your body and how you feel normally. Because when I when I did come down with, with COVID, it was the day after Cinco de Mayo. So I had a few shots of tequila the night before. So, <laughs> so the next morning, I wasn't feeling necessarily COVID sick, but I felt a little hungover, a little out of sorts. And then as the day kind of progressed, I started to experience sort of sudden onset fatigue you know it happened almost immediately uh, i was just sitting on my couch and all of a sudden i had the overwhelming urge to lie down and, and i and that urge did not leave me for three days uh i never really developed a, a cough uh, i had a cough for maybe an hour the morning of but it was a, a kind of a cold day out so i figured maybe i was just out in the cold a, a little bit so you know the symptoms weren't necessarily um, outlandish or outright for me um, initially, but I did recognize that something was wrong, so I immediately quarantined once I felt the fatigue set on, and just sort of little things started happening that gave me clues, like maybe something's not right here. Um, so but, so I took it upon myself to quarantine immediately, and then I first thing that next morning, I was at the testing site. Um, so th that sort of helped just by myself to stop the spread of it just there because I knew that I wasn't doing necessarily well at that time. So I didn't want to continue to spread the virus to those who may not have had it because we did have a huge spike in, in, in cases in the town and I recognized that. So it's just about sort of taking that personal responsibility. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I really appreciate you sharing your story because it is really different for everyone. Again, I had I, heard this from a different epidemiologist who said, you know, this is really a choose-your-own-adventure. People's bodies respond to this virus differently. The virus enters into your cells and replicates in the cells. And how quickly and in what ways your body recognizes that virus can really determine the way that it responds. Some people's uh, body really over-responds to it and causes a lot of swelling and inflammation. People can get a lot of clots associated uh, with this virus. And so, uh, you know, particularly younger people, they may develop a rash on their hands or their feet, uh, something we call COVID toes. We see people lose hair. We see people get a lot of just present with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea and no shortness of breath symptoms. The most kind of passive mnemonic or thing that's most classic is that loss of taste, of sense, and smell that's really pretty unique to COVID. Um, but not everyone has that as well. And so while we still have COVID circulating, uh, and even if someone's vaccinated, someone who develops symptoms, you know, doing just like you did and just getting a free accessible test just to know. Um, my daughter recently developed a runny nose and a sore throat. It's the first time she's really been sick since uh, since COVID hit. Uh, and so immediately got her tested. And unfortunately, she was negative, but I uh, yeah, couldn't quite tell if it was, you know, all the green blooming on the trees uh, or if it was COVID and wanted to just know uh, so that, you know, we could help support her and make sure she wasn't around other people uh, so that we can take care of each other. It's Again, I think there's been a lot of stigma around testing and around getting COVID. That's why I really appreciate you sharing your story because it's just a disease. It's just a highly infectious virus. Um, and the testing that we have and the vaccines we have are just tools. 
and those are tools to keep each other healthy and well uh, and to be informed and to be knowledgeable so that we can make safe decisions for ourselves, for our child, for each other and for our community. I love that. And I think uh, it's important to note that when you do get tested, because my test took a while to get back. Um, my symptoms started to present on a Thursday. I went in on a Friday, that Friday morning. I was the first person at the birth to uh, get my, my free COVID test. I didn't get my results back for five days. So uh, and within, yeah. within that time, things came in and out. And I thought maybe I'm feeling better, maybe not. But there are people who will take these tests and maybe not feel terrible for the entire period. Because uh, my sister also contracted COVID. She was here visiting for a few days. And she didn't really have a lot of symptoms present. She had a few. So she got her COVID test because I uh, tested positive. And she ended up having it. But her symptoms didn't last long. And they weren't really as severe as mine. So I would say like when you have these tests, wait for the results to come back because uh, you may have it and you may be completely asymptomatic and still have COVID. So of course, there's all that happening. So uh, I want to get into what the actual vaccine itself is. I've been reading a little bit about it, a little bit about what RNA is and different things, but I want to hear it from you. Uh, What is the COVID vaccine? The COVID vaccine, I have to say, is pretty cool. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable science and it is... um, just from a, from a science perspective, it's, it's beautifully done. The mRNA vaccines have been studied for about 20 years. Uh, this technology has been in existence, and there have been other vaccines that have been created that have used this base. And what they do is they use bacteria to kind of grow a little kind of strip of an mRNA, a messenger RNA. I think of it like a recipe that will tell your body how it should defend itself against this virus itself. Um, and so when you get the vaccine, what you're getting is you're just getting that mRNA. doesn't have any cells in it. It's not grown in additional cells. It's just this little strip of, of proteins, these little amino acids. It's surrounded in a fat bubble. And the reason for the fat bubble is because mRNA is incredibly fragile. The moment it gets in your body, the enzymes destroy it very, very fast because they're meant to be short messages. They're kind of like, um, think of it like Snapchat. You know, they come and they immediately go away. They're not meant to linger uh, in the system. And so the mRNA is protected by this little fat structure. And that's the reason we've got to freeze the vaccine is to kind of help to support that. Think of like, you know, butter when it's frozen, it's harder versus when it's been sitting on the counter. So we freeze that lipid particle so that it doesn't move and it doesn't become soft. And then it's sitting in some salt and sugar. That's it. That's all that's in the vaccine. We then thaw it out and we put some salt water in it to dilute it uh, so that we have enough to actually be able to pull it up in a syringe. And you get 0.3 ml, so a little tiny dose uh, of it, and it goes uh, in a muscle in your arm. It's a much, much smaller needle than like an IV needle. So I get a lot of questions about like how big of a needle is this? Is it going to be painful? I would say probably 50% of people I give it to don't even feel me putting it in. It's an incredibly small needle. It gets in your system and it gets in those muscles and those cells that it's around, that lipid particle, that little fat structure enters into the cells. And then the mRNA is read by what's called your ribosomes. And they're kind of the manufacturing of proteins that happen in your body. It does not enter your nucleus. It does not change your DNA. Uh, it just goes to the ribosomes. And then the ribosomes read it and they start to produce proteins that look like the spike protein on the coronavirus. And that spike protein is how the virus enters your cells. And then those cells display those spike proteins on their surface. And your immune system says, wait, I have never seen this before. What is this? And it helps to build a robust immune system to it. It helps to take it down. So when you develop arm swelling or you don't feel well for a day or two after your vaccine, that's your body seeing those spike proteins and building a robust T cell and B cell immunity, a strong immunity that's going to last a long time to that. 
And therefore, you are hanging out with your sister or you're hanging out with someone else and you get exposed to COVID-19, that virus enters into your body and your body has already made both antibodies as well as longer-term T-cell response, like what we call innate immune response, to the virus so that the moment it sees it, it takes it down and it can't get in your cells, it can't replicate, and it can't make you really sick. So basically, it's just teaching your immune system how to take down this virus in a strong, robust, safe way you don't overreact to it, but you also give your body a heads up and a kind of a, an advanced warning of what this looks like. And then the reason for the second shot is just like the same reason you might look at flashcards multiple times. It's a second look at that, and that helps to provide longer-lasting immunity. It helps to have that innate, that long-lasting immune response. Um, remember it so you don't forget it so that we don't have to go through this uh, as many times as possible. So that's the reason for getting that second dose is to make sure yeah, you really have that good long-term memory for it. So just to, uh, to I guess, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I say one other thing. Your body then destroys the vaccine within hours. So this vaccine does not last within your system for even days or weeks. Uh, it's destroyed incredibly quickly by your body. Sorry, go for it. Beautiful. So just to be clear, uh, the the messenger RNA is not attaching to your DNA. It's not using your DNA to replicate the uh, vaccine in your body. It's it, so nothing with your nothing's happening with your DNA itself at all. Correct. Nothing's happening with your DNA. It doesn't access your DNA. Your DNA is kind of like a bolt uh, in the nucleus that helps to tell your body how it's going to replicate everything. That's kind of the core of who we are. It can't even get in there. It doesn't have the key to get in. It just goes to the worker bee parts of the ribosomes and helps to make the protein that's destroyed. So it does not affect your DNA. Uh, it does not alter your DNA in any way. And that's how we feel pretty confident about the long-term side effect aspect. You know, can we never say never uh, in medicine? No. We always want to be open to all learning and possibilities. But the mechanism of this is such that it really is just within minutes to hours that we really have the immune system start. And it's in the week's time frame that we really see the immune system responding to this vaccine. And that's why that's really the reason why we feel like after two months of watching how people respond, uh, that we feel confident in saying there's really no long term side effects that we see or know if it's not lasting your system. It's the reason I felt incredibly comfortable having it go, you know, getting both my daughters vaccinated. We hear a lot of misinformation about things like infertility and this is going to change my DNA and I don't know the long-term side effects and this will cause cancer. It's not how the immune system works and it's not how these vaccines work. Um, and it's for those reasons that, um, you know, again, I made the decision for myself and my family uh, to all get vaccinated. Beautiful. So I want to sort of go into... Um, that your 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 answer there sort of leads into this question. Um, a big concern for a lot of people is how quickly the vaccine was released, and you sort of talked about that we've worked with messenger RNA before in, in vaccines, so we kind of knew how it worked in that way. But I want to uh, just give you an opportunity to really speak on that and what you would say to the people who are really concerned that the vaccine was available so quickly. Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic question. The big difference between this vaccine rollout and others is there was a lot of bureaucracy and red tape cut. So, for example, um, the companies that helped develop these vaccines were able to do it because they had the money to do it. So they didn't have to fundraise and get money between each step to get grants. They could enroll people in the trials, get people all set to go for the trials if they're set and up and working. I think it's really fascinating that it was actually 63 days from the time this virus was first sequenced to the first mRNA vaccine was actually in a human being tried. The vaccine development was set and ready to go for this reason, for a pandemic. Like if we had a pandemic, this technology was there. 
We've been building on vaccine technology for the last, you know, you know over 100 years and looking at the way the immune system works. And so what was happening all last summer and fall was testing these vaccines and ensuring that they were safe and efficacious. So none of those clinical steps were skipped. They all went through the normal process. The FDA is the most rigorous body in the world for approving vaccines. And some failed. You know, the Merck vaccine failed. AstraZeneca has not been approved in this uh, country uh, for numerous reasons. But the ones that we have approved, uh, we have a lot of information about, uh, and they were on big trials. That being said, trials are limited. You know, they are tens of thousands of people. They aren't tens of millions of people. And so little tiny safety signals can pop up later. And that's the reason for ongoing monitoring that always happens. That was part of the reason for the Johnson & Johnson pause was because they saw six cases of a rare type of blood clot. And that was more than you would expect in the population. And so they paused that, asked clinicians to report anymore, and looked into the data and even with all of the cases that were reported, which was a total of 15 at that point, uh, looking at the number of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID in those who were not vaccinated compared to those who had this rare blood clot, you still were saving hundreds of lives, thousands of lives by vaccinating rather than not. And that's the reason they kind of started the rollout of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine again. I think it's also important to note that the VAERS database, which is this kind of public database, anyone can enter information into it, um, is just a way to collect any possible anything that could be related. It does not mean that the vaccine caused the adverse side effect or the condition that was seen. So, for example, if I get vaccinated and I, you know, hit a tree on the way home as I'm uh, driving home, it doesn't mean the vaccine caused it. But you want to make sure it's not causing people to pass out and then hit a tree. So we want information reported into that system so we can see if things are happening more likely after vaccination than not compared to kind of baseline rates. Because at baseline, people are born, people die, things happen uh, to all of us as humans. And we want to see if those are happening at higher rates or lower rates compared to the population. And we are not seeing after hundreds of millions of doses of the J&J being, or excuse me, of the Moderna and Pfizer being rolled out adverse side effects, except for between two to six per million uh, of these kind of bad anaphylactic reactions where people can have a lot of swelling, shortness of breath that we can treat with epinephrine right away. So that's the one example there that we, we do see. And that's why we ask people to wait 15 to 30 minutes after their uh, shot to make sure that they don't have that reaction. Nice. You know, when I got my vaccine, uh, I didn't really experience any uh, side effects until the next day. And there was about an hour and a half span where I felt a lot of uh, a little bit of nausea. At one point, I actually I didn't black out, but I had a little bit of a brownout where I sort of felt like I might uh, faint. But all of that only lasted for about an hour and and a half, the uh, the really severe side of it. And then I developed a little bit of a headache that day. But the next morning I woke up, I felt like a million bucks. So uh, some of that stuff did appear uh, the uh, the following day, about 24 hours after my vaccine, but nothing too crazy. Uh, I want to speak on something that you mentioned here. A big myth is that the vaccines are actually not FDA um, approved. And I want you to speak on that because you just mentioned that they were. So I, I actually wasn't sure about that. So could you speak on that a little bit? Yes, that's a great uh, question. So the FDA is kind of our big regulatory body that approves both medications and vaccines. They do have a process called an emergency use authorization. And so it is an approved vaccine via the emergency use process. The reason they are not fully approved without the emergency use at this time is because of looking at other age groups. So normally when a vaccine gets approved, it looks at every age group, every scenario that this would be used in and approves it kind of across the board when we're not in a time rush to be able to to get it out there. That being said, an emergency use authorization looks at a finite age group. 
and says, for this age group, it is safe, but you can't give it outside of that age group. So if this was an approved vaccine, a fully approved vaccine that wasn't an emergency use authorization vaccine, you could use it outside of those age groups. You as a clinician can make some kind of deep, you can make some judgment calls on how to use it. In emergency use, you've got to really stay within that emergency use because they haven't tested it in other age groups. So, for example, when the vaccines first came out, the Moderna was only those 18 and above. Pfizer was only those 16 and above. Johnson & Johnson was only 18 and above. And so it was emergency approved in those age groups. Both Moderna and Pfizer have submitted now for full approval now that they have additional age data um, looking at all age groups. Um, And right now it has also received an emergency use authorization for the Pfizer down to age 12. So there's a lot of kind of confusion um, and back and forth uh, about that component. But this is just a process that FDA uses both for medication and for vaccines um, when there is kind of a necessity to get something out quickly in a, for a limited group or for a limited setting. We see the same with treatment options. So, for example, the monoclonal antibodies have received an emergency use authorization at this time. We are using them for people who get really sick from COVID-19 or who are at high risk for COVID-19. Um, but we have to stay within that emergency use, who they've really approved it for. You can't use it off-label. Um, and so that's why, and then as they get more data, then they make it a, a fully approved um, medication where you could use it off-label. Does that help answer that question? I think it does. Uh, Dr. Hugh, Dr. Hugh, you've been really generous with your time here, and I did, did not ask before how long we had. Uh, do we have time for four more questions? Sure. We can do a little bit longer. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So you, you sort of touched on the age ranges and I have a question here. Uh, children 12 plus, uh, the vaccines were just approved for, uh, for children who are 12 and older to receive it. Um, why were uh, they not approved before? Was it just that we just did, we didn't have the, the testing for it at, at that time or what is the case there? Yeah. We, so before anything gets approved, we need the data. And so they did not prioritize children for the initial groups. And the reason for that is because we do know that COVID affects adults, particularly older adults, more than it affects children. So when they were trying to look at who's impacted the most, we've got this worldwide pandemic, how do we need to prioritize our time and resources? They prioritized adults for the initial vaccine trials. And that was the first that was FDA approved. And that was the first vaccine that rolled out. As they, you know, as we continued on, they had expanded those trials. And there are now trials going on from six months of age and up. And they're not approved in those younger age groups because we don't have the data. Uh, so I got asked the other day, you know, would I recommend this vaccine to a kindergartner? And I said, I need to do the data first. I need to see is it safe and efficacious in that group. What we have right now is that this vaccine looks safe and efficacious for those 12 and above, which is great to see. Beautiful. Now, I've heard that there are... That- that there can sometimes be psychological um, effects uh, after having COVID. My grandmother uh, has stage four COPD and she's had COVID twice. And my aunts and uncles have said that she hasn't quite been the same mentally since, uh, since her first bout with COVID. Are there any known psychological effects of COVID? Yeah, for sure. Um, I appreciate you asking. Again, as we talked about just beginning, I think people think of this as a respiratory illness alone, but this virus spreads throughout your body and can impact your body in many ways. Even the fact that you lost your taste of sense and smell, those are the neurons, uh, the little nerves in your nose and and mouth that that's affecting. Um, And so it can have effects um, on people's brain. It can have people uh, effects on the way that people think. We've seen everything from uh, psychosis to hallucinations. 
Um, people can, from just hypoxia, not getting enough oxygen, can also have kind of increasing dementia or shortness of breath. So when I hear somebody who's got bad COPD, who got COVID twice, I worry about the fact that their oxygen level may have been dropping low, and that can also cause damage to the brain. So it can either be primarily from the virus. It can be secondary from like what we call microclots, these little tiny, small um, blood clots that can happen because of it that can affect the nerves. Or it can be because of damage to other organs like your lungs or kidneys that then can have neurologic impacts as well. So it can really be a whole system uh, disease. And uh, we are seeing more and more long-term impacts on COVID. Two out of three people who get COVID, both symptomatic and asymptomatic, will end up seeing their primary care doctor in six months after their diagnosis because of some sort of symptoms related to COVID-19. Uh, we've seen people lose their hair. I have a really healthy friend who is a big marathon runner who's still on oxygen. We wow. unfortunately can see some really long-term impacts of the disease. If you don't get COVID, you don't get long COVID. So it's another reason to get vaccinated. Beautiful. Yeah, definitely. If you don't get COVID, you don't get long COVID. That's a that's a beautiful quote there. Um, so I have a, just a few more questions directly related to the vaccine. Um, and the side effects of such and that are that are known and some that are uh, sort of rumor. Um, so infertility, has the vaccine been linked to infertility? And also we'll just kind of tie it into what are the common side effects that are known of the vaccine? Yeah, so the vaccine has not been related to infertility. It does not cause infertility. Um, I feel like if there's one piece of misinformation I could get out there uh, and really kind of combat, that is that one. There was uh, someone who looked at the genetic sequencing of the placenta and of the spike protein and hypothesized that those two could go together. But it's kind of like saying, you know, my red car is the same thing as, you know, my red fork. They may have some red to them, but they are completely different structurally. Uh, and there's no mechanistic way that we can see that this vaccine would cause any challenges for fertility or infertility. And again, it's the reason why my two daughters are now vaccinated, um, because I, I strongly believe that this is a safe and efficacious vaccine. We see COVID, again, causing small clots. We see higher rates of miscarriage as well as pregnancy complications um, amongst women who are pregnant and get COVID. We know that women who get COVID while they're pregnant are at higher risk than women who are not pregnant. And so for many reasons, uh, we... Um, uh, we continue to make sure that women who are pregnant or women who are considering getting pregnant uh, have access to the vaccine to protect themselves and others. So uh, no evidence that it causes uh, problems there. Regarding what side effects you do see, uh, you know, you talked about some of the ones that you see. We see a lot of people who get fatigue, arm soreness, uh, kind of body aches. Occasionally people can get like a high fever and feel pretty darn miserable. It's important to remember that just a placebo shot, just a normal saline shot can cause similar symptoms, but not to the same degree. Interestingly, when I was looking at the data, you know, a third of people who got the vaccine uh, and a third of the people who, excuse me, a third of people who got placebo uh, said that they were very fatigued afterwards. I think that just shows that we're all tired from COVID. Uh, but a higher percentage, more like 50%, uh, got really fatigued if they've gotten the vaccine. So we do see statistically significant, um, more people who are vaccinated than placebo got sore arms, they could get a red rash, they could develop a fever, they could feel chilled. Um, and, and people do present in very different ways. Like you, I had very mild symptoms. You know, my arm got hot uh, the day after I got the vaccine, was a little bit sore. And the next morning I woke up and it was totally fine. And then when I got my second shot, um, I had worked an overnight shift in the emergency department and felt a little tired and a little headachey, but I 
took a nap and drank a cup of coffee and uh, I was back to normal. So I couldn't really tell if that was my overnight shift or if that was the vaccine. Uh, but that was my uh, entire second experience with it. So we see a variety of presentations, but statistically, people are more likely to be fatigued um, and have a, can get a little bit of a red rash and feel sore after the, the vaccine. That's the most common side effect. Yeah, I d- I've definitely noticed that thing. Like the people who do present with um, a lot of side effects, they usually just sleep it off and it's better than, than the next day, which I'll tell you that does not happen with the COVID. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so uh, so you sort of touched on this already, uh, but just this is a big question. I want to just really just uh, plain and clearly uh, call it out. Um, has anyone died from the vaccine? You sort of uh, talked about, you know, people die from other things and that maybe uh, it could have been the vaccine or something else. But I want to hear your direct answer to that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine causing this rare type of blood clot as well as low platelets has resulted what is believed to be in at least one death associated with that. So that was part of the reason that the Johnson & Johnson was paused. Um, regarding the Moderna and the Pfizer, um, are in, so the CDC and the FDA are the two regulatory bodies that look through all of this various data. Uh, and we continue to ask them, say, you know, are there any known deaths that are directly attributed to the vaccine? And the reports we get back from them is no. It's just with those rare blood clots that are, have been seen within the Johnson & Johnson. That being said, people have died after getting the vaccine. Um, and it can be anything from a lightning strike to a car accident to a blood clot. Um, and we look at what are the baseline rates of blood clots? What are the baseline rates of strokes? What are the baseline rates of heart attacks? And are we seeing more or less after vaccination? And again, we're not seeing more except for those two exceptions that I mentioned, the Johnson and Johnson with that rare type of blood clot, primarily in younger women. And then the Moderna and Pfizer redness swelling. And some people can develop this anaphylaxis, this kind of extreme allergic reaction shortly afterwards that requires epinephrine to turn around. Um, And those we've seen in this state and other places, um, but no known deaths that I am aware of. Okay, Dr. Zink, I have one more question for you, and then I'll end with a bit of an encouraging word. Um, why do we have three different vaccines? And out of the three vaccines, which one would you say is the best? Yeah, it's a great question. So we see this commonly for lots of different uh, viruses where you might have multiple different types of vaccines. Again, in an effort to make sure that we had lots of different options out there, many vaccine companies were developing vaccines to this virus. Um, and we see worldwide all sorts of different vaccines, which is great. The more options we have, uh, the more options we have to make sure that this virus is, uh, is kind of put behind us. So that's the reason we have three in this country is because the FDA has approved three different ones. Uh, there's over 20 different COVID vaccines worldwide. So there are a lot more vaccines that are available worldwide than there are in the U.S. Um, but we only have three FDA approved here uh, in this country at this time. Which one would I get? Um, well, really early on in the pandemic, I said whichever one I could get. Uh, you know, I just was seeing the devastation of this disease. I think we're at a little bit different point in that now. We now have really widely available all three vaccines. Um, and we, um, you can really go into most places and get any one of those three. So if I'm in the 12 to 18-year-old age group, the Pfizer is the only option. And so I would get the Pfizer vaccine. Um, as a woman in my 40s, um, I would, you know, highly consider uh, getting an mRNA vaccine, the Moderna or Pfizer, instead of the Johnson & Johnson because of those incredibly rare clotting side effects. Um, And I'm totally fine getting two shots and would kind of rather that. So I think it is important to put into it your history and medical concerns 
um, in the ability to choose. We are very fortunate that we have three. And deep, people's different health conditions may result in them choosing one over another. There's another woman who had a very bad anaphylactic reaction to uh, the Pfizer vaccine when she first got it. And so she ended up getting the Johnson & Johnson as her second one to help protect her because she couldn't get the mRNA as a second one because she had such a bad reaction the first time. So it depends a little bit on your past medical history and I encourage people to talk to their doctor about what they might choose for them. Okay. So what we've heard here is that uh, maybe not the Johnson & Johnson. <laughs> oh, no, not, 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 not actually. But uh, okay, I love that answer. Thank you so much. And uh, our, my last little thing, with the huge spike of COVID cases here in Ketchikan, just to sort of end it all out, what would you say, Dr. Zink, to help encourage those who may still be weary of the vaccine even after this interview? Yeah, I would say just keep asking questions from reliable resources. I appreciate people tuning in here. Um, we do have a physician's bureau that will come to your coffee club, your PTA meeting, your Rotary Club, and be able to ask questions. We want to make sure that every Alaskan has access to the same information that we do that has made us feel confident in making this decision. And it's about keeping yourself safe and healthy. It's about keeping your community safe and healthy. It's about being able to protect those who can't be protected, like our kiddos, uh, people who are undergoing cancer treatment. You know, their immune system gets taken down for all sorts of reasons. So we collectively uh, have a mission uh, to be able to care for each other. I would also say that, you know, the vaccine's free versus missing days of work and or uh, having to go to the ER or be hospitalized can be really expensive. And if you're vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine. So the people of Ketchikan, we all have a lot to do this summer, hoping for a lot of tourism, hoping for a lot of business, hoping for a lot of gatherings, hoping for a lot of get together. But if you're vaccinated, you don't have to worry about quarantining if you have been exposed because the chances you get it and the chances you spread it to someone else are so low. Uh, so our fastest way to put this pandemic behind us is to get vaccinated and uh, encourage people to keep asking questions because this is your choice. And we want to support your choice, but we want to make sure you've got the tools and knowledge um, to keep your family and your community safe. Thank you so much, Dr. Zink. Now, that physician bureau you just mentioned, um, how does one um, get uh, how, how does one um, procure a physician to come into the community and really talk about it and so that they can ask questions at their organizations and such? Is there a, a website, a number? Yeah. So if you go to our website, covidvax.alaska.gov, um, you go down, there's kind of community resources, and there's a button on there that says request a physician bureau speaker. Um, you just fill out a job form. You know, I'm Jane Doe, and I have a book club, and we'd love for you to come on Tuesday night at 7 p.m. We have a group of uh, physicians at the state and, and uh, others that have been volunteering to help us and a coordinator that helps. Um, and they'll come and if it's a 10-minute presentation or a half-hour presentation and a series of questions afterwards will fit within your time. And we really encourage people to ask questions. It gives us a chance to hear what you're thinking and it gives a chance for you to hear from the team um, on the reasons that we're sharing this information. So I encourage people to go to covidvax.alaska.gov and request it if they'd like to. That's covidvax.alaska.gov. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Zink. You've been so generous with your time here. And uh, for those who missed this broadcast live, this will be available on the KTKN website. And I'll have it on my Facebook as well. Dr. Zink, you've been incredible. Thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in to the First City Forum. It's a cloudy day here in Ketchikan, but it's always beautiful. Have a great day, guys. Bye. First City Forum will continue after this. KN, weather for Southern Southeast Alaska. Today, a chance of rain in the morning with